I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. In the very first episode of this podcast, we mentioned that early urban cinemas in the U.S. pretty much fall into one type or another, the movie palace or the neighborhood house. Since then, we haven't really talked anymore about the movie palace, though. Well, hold on to your hats, nerds, because it's finally time. This is our first episode in a series on the crazy, over-the-top, opulent doesn't even begin to cover it, most excessive extravaganzas of architecture that defined 1920s urban movie going. Buildings that exemplified, as F. Scott Fitzgerald famously wrote, a decade of a whole race going hedonistic, deciding on pleasure. There's a lot of ground to cover, and we'll certainly try to do the topic justice. If you feel that we gloss over anything during this series, fear not. We need fodder for future episodes. And of course, there are many more architects and magnificent movie palaces than we'll be able to talk about in this series. I've been selective, picking theaters and or architects that fit into neat little groups. Hopefully this still gives you a good idea of the entire arc of the movie palace, a distinct architectural form that famous architecture critic Ada Louise Huxtable referred to as some of the richest and most extravagantly romantic architecture this country has ever produced. Let's talk a little bit about how the movie palace came to be and look at a few early examples. In her examination of movie palace architecture, Charlotte Herzog notes its many predecessors, including vaudeville theaters, penny arcades, Nickelodeons, and dime museums. Vaudeville theaters were particularly influential. Early vaudeville architecture almost always took on a classical form to give it an air of respectability and the prestige of legitimate theater. At the same time, these early stage showhouses weren't shy about advertising. Herzog reminds us of the elaborate display of electric lights, attraction boards, posters, and unusual architectural motifs and details that studded the otherwise cool and stately exteriors of several vaudeville houses. Movie palaces would employ the seemingly contradictory design elements of quiet, sophisticated facades and loud, flashing lights to great effect. And vaudeville interior elements, lush lounges and lobbies, comfortable parlors and smoking rooms, would find their way into movie palaces too. There wasn't one singular catalyst that led to creation of the movie palace as we know it today. Rather, its development can be attributed to several different things. One of the earliest examples of the movie palace, New York City's Regent, gives some evidence of this. As noted by the New York Landmarks Preservation Commission, in New York, there was something of a practical motivator for the movie palace, in addition to the aesthetic. In 1913, the city passed an ordinance that prohibited stages and galleries in smaller theaters. For movie theaters to remain profitable while meeting the new legal requirements, Owners realized that their theaters would have to be larger in size with more seating. Larger, more luxurious movie theaters, following the architectural model of legitimate and vaudeville theaters and concrete halls, were built. At the same time, the development of the first American feature-length narrative films, or photoplays, 
further transformed the motion picture and theater business, and this popular entertainment was promoted as respectable enough for families and the middle classes. The Regent, designed by Thomas Lamb, opened on February 8, 1913, with seating for more than 1,800 patrons. It's considered by some to be the first movie palace. Again, from the New York Landmarks Preservation Commission, an elegant architectural design, the Regent was built to elevate the presentation of movies and was one of the first luxurious movie theaters in New York City. Its distinctive eclectic design, executed in polychrome terracotta on the front portion of the building, incorporates Italian and Northern European Renaissance and Mannerist motifs. Lamb's design was, according to Motion Picture News, an exemplification of refined taste in arrangement, decoration, and the general tone of entertainment furnished therein. In every respect, this theater's entertainment may be classed among the most refined and uplifting in New York City. Then, on April 11, 1914, the Strand Theater, also designed by Lamb, opened in the heart of the Broadway theater area of New York City as America's largest. Covering an area of 20 city lots, it fronted 155 feet on Broadway and 277 feet on 47th Street. Seating 3,500, with 1,500 downstairs and everyone else in a single balcony, it was a million-dollar theater with fine construction enhanced by every modern improvement. The New York Times noted that the moving pictures and other features of the program are under the direction of S.L. Rothfell. On opening night, it was said that, on entering the theater, the spectator unconsciously yielded to that singular atmosphere of art and comfort which manager Rothfell is able to provide with so little apparent effort. Rothfell was a greatest showman type who we'll talk about a little later in the series and who will cover much greater detail outside of this series. Grand edifices like the Regent and Strand, and the experience one had within, began to legitimize moviegoing. The Regent was referred to as refined more than once. The Strand's opening was a veritable who's who of New York's high society, and within a year of its opening, it was being called a temple. It was claimed that, in all America, there is no place where the art of moving pictures is so luxuriously and so perfectly housed as at the Strand. At the same time, movie palaces weren't only for the rich. In fact, the sheer size of most movie palaces made them, by definition, a place of entertainment for the masses. And not just a place. As Maria Slowinska posits, the movie palace did not just provide a pleasant context for watching a film, but formed a significant experience in its own right, and one that might often even have surpassed the experience of the film itself. The great movie palaces were designed by architects whose training was steeped in classical European traditions, and it showed. The average moviegoer was able to completely escape from their ordinary life not just by watching the film being shown, but by being totally absorbed into fantastical, worldly architecture that they would have never otherwise had the chance to experience. So, despite their name, which implies a certain eliteness, movie palaces were, to use a word that gets thrown around a lot today, the democratization of high-class moviegoing. Architect George Rapp said movie palaces were a shrine to democracy where the wealthy rub elbows with the poor. And he was basically right. 
Both rich and poor were able to enjoy the same space and were treated the same by courteous doormen and ushers. From the seeds of the regent and strand, per Ben Hall in his book The Best Remaining Seats, the story of the golden age of the movie palace, there developed in the 1920s essentially two major schools of movie palace design, the standard, or hardtop, which had its precedent in the Opera House and Vaudeville Theater, but which grew more exotic as the decade progressed, and the atmospheric, or stars and clouds, which borrowed from nature and the more flamboyant landscape gardeners of the past. Generally consistent in both of these design types were several characteristics. Like any other business storefront, the theater facade had to draw people in. As such, it usually had an unobstructed recessed exterior vestibule or ticket lobby that tempted folks on the street with a brief glimpse of the theater's interior. Within these areas, the box office was typically set forward to be as close to the sidewalk as possible. As ECA Bullock of the firm Rap and Rap noted, under no circumstances should it be necessary to pass through doors or by other obstructions before a ticket may be purchased. In addition, movie palaces almost always had large, flashy marquees that projected out beyond the building to cover a portion of the sidewalk in front of the theater. And these marquees were often coupled with vertical signs bearing the name of the theater with hundreds of flashing bulbs that drew attention from blocks away. Once inside a movie palace, moviegoers typically experienced an interior lavishly decorated in a romantic but highly eclectic historic mode to distinguish it from the other buildings around it and give it the stamp of legitimacy. They also experienced exceptional service from theater staff. The movie palace thrived throughout the 1920s, its lavishness perfectly in tune with the very Gatsby-ish nature of the whole decade. Movie palaces became places where, to loosely quote Thomas Lamb, moviegoers were cut off from the rest of city life and taken into a rich and self-contained auditorium where their minds are freed from their usual occupations and their customary thought. The movie palace was as much escapism as the movie itself. As theater owner Marcus Lowe is often quoted as saying, we sell tickets to theaters, not movies. Larger and larger, more and more opulent, these theaters grew. While the average size in the 1910s ranged from 1,000 to 1,800 seats, it was between 1,800 and 2,500 seats during the 20s. But not everyone was into the elaborate designs and grand scale. One architecture critic of the late 1920s thought that movie palaces were a prostitution of architecture, taste and beauty abased to the lowest degree. I'm sure there were a few people out there who'd refer to these theaters as gaudy and more than a little gauche, but by and large, they were well-received in their time, and the ones that remain today are pretty much universally revered. Throughout the rest of this series, we'll profile just a few of the many architects that made the movie palaces so grand, and we'll look at many of the movie palaces themselves, which are, in the words of the venerable Leonard Malton, some of the greatest cultural landmarks in America. Here's a quick summary of this series' episodes. Two architects defined the two general types of movie palace styles, the hardtop and the atmospheric that we mentioned earlier, 
to such an extent that now they're practically synonymous with them. Thomas Lamb led development of the standard movie palaces, while John Eberson pioneered and practically perfected the atmospheric ones. We'll talk about each architect in the next couple of episodes. We'll then head to the Windy City for part four to talk about the very productive pairing of Balaban and Cats and Rap and Rap. For parts five and six, we'll head to Los Angeles and explore the Broadway Theater District and Hollywood's themed theaters. For part seven, we'll look at the theaters that architect Marcus Pratica created for Alexander Pantages. And we'll return to New York during part eight for a look at Lowe's Wonder Theaters. We'll then close out the series with the end of the Movie Palace era. Although the Movie Palace became a victim of changing tastes and the Great Depression, a few Art Deco masterpieces were created before all was said and done. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode, part two of our Movie Palace series, for all things Thomas Lamb. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center. <laughs> <laughs>